the idea that our senses are giving us accurate information about reality, I think is, is extremely flawed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Feedback Loop, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture from the individual to society at large. I'm your host, Stephen Parton, coming at you from Singularity University. This week, I had the very fortunate opportunity to sit down with Annika Harris, whose brand new book, Conscious, A Brief Guide to the Fundamental Mystery of the Mind, just became a New York Times bestseller which to my mind is such an incredible feat and a great sign for humanity, especially when you consider that the content Annika is exploring has to do with some of the most complex, confusing, and important questions our species has ever struggled with, like what is consciousness? How did it come into existence? Why does it exist? I personally had the chance to listen to Annika's new book on a recent road trip and absolutely loved the lightning storm of thoughts that it brought to my mind. It made me feel like an old-fashioned detective as I constantly had to pause to record new ideas and questions into my phone. From this personal experience, I would say that if you're someone who's just begun to dip their toes into the confusing world that is consciousness and free will, Annika's new book should prove a fantastic primer full of easily digestible examples and case studies, all of which should get you to a strong understanding of the latest and most fundamental theories around consciousness. And if you're someone who fancies themselves a bit of a mind aficionado, I'd suspect that the concise packaging that Annika provides here will still manage to refresh some new associations and spark some new perspectives and epiphanies for you. It's rare that so many big ideas are put next to each other in a way that is so understandable, so you really can't go too wrong here. Now, rather than just do a chapter-by-chapter summary of Annika's book, I decided to instead focus on asking her questions that I thought many of you might have after your own reading. These were questions that I also had and questions that I hope will expand on or explore some additional aspects of the subject matter we're exploring. And believe me, with the mystery that is consciousness, that still left us with a lot to talk about. So even if you've read the book, this conversation should still provide a lot of insights and additional value for you. To that end, some of the key areas that we explored had to do with the ideas of challenging commonly accepted intuitions, the benefits of meditation, arguments for and against free will, how consciousness and culture are being impacted by AI and the internet, and lastly, the idea of panpsychism, which is the concept that consciousness is actually a fundamental part of matter. This was truly a fun conversation to be a part of, as Annika has a wonderful sense of humor and managed to keep things nice and light while we played with some terribly difficult topics. Now just one last thing before we get into it, you'll notice that we talked a bit about the work of Donald Hoffman as well. He's another renowned science author and also a professor of cognitive psychology at UC Irvine. I'm very happy to announce that he'll be joining us on the feedback loop in early August, just in time for the release of his book, A Case Against Reality. So be sure to subscribe and keep your eyes out for that. Additionally, we heard from some of you that your emails weren't getting through to singularityradio at su.org, but luckily that issue has been resolved. So if you didn't hear back from us lately, please feel free to resend your message. I would hate to have lost your correspondence during this hiccup. Again, that email address is singularityradio at su.org, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes. 
on that note, if you have any questions for Donald Hoffman or future guests that you might want to recommend to us, please send them along with any name or Twitter handle you might want us to attribute the question to so we can give you a shout out on the corresponding episode. As always, your ratings, your shares, your questions, your recommendations, and your support mean the world to us. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. All right, then, I think that is enough housekeeping for me for now, so let's go ahead and get into the good stuff. Everyone, please welcome to the podcast, Annika Harris. Either way, do you want to tell us your 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 life story? Yeah, it's a it's a strange life story, and it doesn't the, it's hard to connect all the dots, even though they actually they do connect in my mind. But um, I, I for the the thing that's relevant to to the book I've just written um is for the last um fifteen years or so I've been working with scientists who write um, books for the general public, and so I mostly I've been doing editing and and ghostwriting, and um. I've you know done some coaching for for TED talks and things like that, but basically anything to help make scientists work more accessible to the general public is something I'm I'm very passionate about, um, and I've mostly worked with worked with neuroscientists and some physicists, and so um, all of my work with the neuroscientists has has definitely informed. Um, a lot of my thinking in this book about consciousness, um, although it has been a lifelong fascination of mine, it's something I've been—I've actually been thinking about for as long as I can remember. Um, I think even before I had the word, before I even knew there was a term for it, it was something that um, I was interested in. So you previously wrote a children's book, yes, yeah, called I, yeah. I Wonder. Mm-hmm. What was, how did that transition kind of happen? What led you to that? And then to make this kind of larger leap? That's something, yeah, that's something I never expected to do, actually. And I don't, I, I, I never say never, but I'm not, I don't think I'll ever write another children's book. It was, it was really um, also inspired by my work with scientists um, in combination with having children and realizing, um, so the book is called I Wonder, and it's it's really about teaching children that it's okay to say, I don't know. Um, and actually beyond that, that it's actually a state, not knowing is a state to celebrate because um, it's the source of curiosity and wonder um, and learning. Of course, you know, there's, there's nothing for scientists to do. There's nothing for us to learn if we have all the answers. And so it's actually this wonderful thing. And that's very counter to what our culture teaches us. Our culture in general teaches us. Um, to be fearful or ashamed of the feeling of not knowing. Um, and so I wrote the book. Um, I wrote it almost more for parents um, to read to their children than as a book. I, I don't see myself as someone who can write stories for children, really. Um, and so it was the book that I wish had been out there, which is how, how so many passion projects start. Right? I, I started out looking for a book. Um, that would help me talk to my daughter about this and help kind of um, counter what I was finding in the culture, both in my work with scientists and and seeing children grow up. Um, and I and I couldn't find anything about talking to children about it being okay to say I don't know. And so um, it just it started with that. And um, I didn't know if there'd be you know ten other parents like me who are interested in a book like this. And it turns out. <laughs> There are a, a lot of parents who have who've thought about this and, and com- wanted some guidance in, in helping their children. And so it's, it's all about um, the beauty of being in a state of awe and learning to say, I don't know, and learning that um, not knowing is, is something to um, 
to kind of cherish in a sense. And then beyond that, um, the big the biggest message is really that all of the true mysteries in the world, everything that no human being no human being has the answer for, um, is something that actually unites us and connects us. And um, and that that's something that I think is important to share with children as well. And that actually is very connected to. Um, my motivation for writing this book about consciousness as well. Yeah, I love that idea that we're kind of uh, brought together by our ignorance. Um, I, before, I guess I want to play with that idea of awe, that state of awe I think is really important and incredible when it comes to consciousness and free will, but maybe like you should do as a good philosopher, let's maybe start off defining the term. Yes, what, sure. When you think of consciousness, um, what is that to you? Because from my understanding, you have a bit of a, you like to make sure that you specify that it's different than what a lot of people tend to think about, I think. Yes. So, yeah. So the word is used um, many different ways and it seems to only be used more and more ways. <laughs> so I think it's really important um, to get very specific about what we're talking about. So um, the way I use the word conscious and what I'm referring to in the book is really consciousness in the most fundamental sense. And for me, the best um, synonym really is experience. And I actually think experience is a slightly better word than than consciousness. Um, but I, I use um, Thomas Nagel's definition from his essay, um, What Is It Like to Be a Bat, that I think, for me, really gets at this core kind of fundamental sense of consciousness. Um, and he, what he says in that article is, uh, sorry, in that essay is, um, a, an organism is conscious if there is something that it is like to be that organism. <clears throat> and I, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so I think you can replace um, something it is like also with experience. So if, if that organism is having an experience, if the lights are on from the inside, um, and this very quickly gets to the heart of what's so mysterious about consciousness and um the mystery that I'm pointing to, which is there, we, we um, look out at the world and the universe and we see all of this non-conscious material, right? There are all these um, atoms and particles, but somehow when they get configured in a certain way, there there's an, in, an experience entailed um, in the matter itself. So it becomes something that it's like, there's something that it's like to be that collection of matter. Um, and so some people have a hard time getting their minds around um, Nagel's wording, which is understandable because it's not so precise. Um, I think for a lot of us, it just it, it kind of quickly triggers. We like we just get it instantaneously. It's like, oh, experience, you know, if there's something that it's like um, to be my computer keyboard, <laughs> you know, which we assume it's not, right? So my computer keyboard is not having an experience. I am having an experience. And so just that simple difference between there being an experience present or not um, is what I mean by consciousness in this book and what um, and, and points to what the mystery is about consciousness. And there's another layer to that as well, right? Which is, are you driving the awareness? Are you driving the experience? That's another, mm -hmm. it, it feels like when you get into consciousness, you almost immediately have to then talk about free will and kind of what yes. role you're playing as the, are you the observer or are you yeah. the person driving? Yeah. 
Yeah, so I, I, um, I, I begin the book um, pretty early on with two questions. And so I, I should say, so the, so the book is, is really about the science and philosophy of consciousness, and I try to cover as much as I can in a, a short, accessible book. Um, but the goal um, is really was really for me to focus on what makes consciousness so mysterious um, and to have all of the discussion in the framework of challenging our intuitions. And I think challenging intuitions is incredibly important and is obviously important for the scientific process. Um, <clears throat> and there, there are so many examples you can give. I, I think it's almost in every case that we reach a deeper understanding of a more fundamental truth um, about the nature of reality that requires some period of clashing with our previous intuitions. Um, and I think I think our intuitions are very likely misleading us in terms of what we think consciousness is and how we're attempting to study it. Um, so I really see that one of the most important things, if not the most important thing we can do right now in consciousness studies is really challenge our intuitions. Um, and so I, I kind of, everything I discuss in the book is, is in that framework. Um, and I begin the book with these two questions that for me get at like the core is exactly what you were pointing to, where like you very quickly get to free will and the self and these things that um, our intuitions about really deeply inform our intuitions about consciousness. But I, I see kind of two categories of intuitions. One is our intuitions about what consciousness is, about consciousness itself. And then there's another category of intuitions, which are intuitions from other areas of our life that, that strongly inform our, our, our um, understanding of consciousness or our um, theories about what consciousness is. And so I, I tackle both of those. And the first piece is just really was my attempt to get at what are the deepest intuitions we have about consciousness in the first place? Um, and can we shake those up a little bit? And can we see if maybe the things we are just assuming are true are, are maybe not quite right? Um, so the first question is, um, is there any behavior we can see in a system on the outside? Can we? Is there any behavior that we can... Um, point to that is direct evidence of conscious experience in that system. So is there any behavior that we can say, yes, if we, if we see that behavior, that system is conscious or that animal is conscious, that person is conscious. Um, and we have a very strong reflexive answer to that, um, which is why I, I wanted to start there. We all assume that, yes, there there's certain time. And, and, and I wanted to z really zero in on is this right? And if it is, what are those behaviors? Right. So I, so I pick that apart beginning there. Um, one of the things that's interesting about that question is even if we can, which I actually think we can't, but even if we can find behaviors um, that we can say are conclusive evidence of consciousness, the flip side of that is we know that there can be conscious experience without any behavior at all. And so that, that I think is interesting and, and a place we can start to, to shake up our intuitions a little. And then the second question is very related, um, but it's, it's coming at it from a slightly different angle, which is, is consciousness doing anything? And this is basically what you're pointing to. And we have a very, very strong intuition. Um, it's so strong that it, it truly feels like a fact of the universe, right? That our consciousness um, is in fact doing something, that it is driving a lot of our behavior, specifically free will, um, that we couldn't make elaborate choices without it, that there, there are a lot of things it seems like if we didn't have consciousness kind of moving 
this behavior, the behavior wouldn't happen. Um, and I think we're probably at least in part wrong about both of those intuitions. And I think it's it's super interesting to, to interrogate them. Um, sorry, I've been talking for a long time. <laughs> no, no, you're good. I, I, I was going to ask you what the intuitions okay. were and then you told me, so it's perfect. Um, what you got into there that I want to would love to explore is one, one idea I always love is uh, I believe it's Descartes. He talks about beast machines and it's the idea that, you know, animals are kind of just playing out this algorithm. Mm. And I think we often forget that we are also animals. animals. <laughs> right? But there is something to be said for the fact that we have very obviously separated ourselves from the animal kingdom in a lot of yes, ways. And potentially sure. one way we've done that is maybe the prefrontal cortex and this idea of um, maybe imagination and, and this arena where we can kind of play with simulations and ideas that kind of prepare us for our actions. That seems like an obvious evolutionary benefit. Um, do you, have you thought about where that, that spark might've come from in evolution? If, if there was, if there's a reason we might've created a, a passenger that can't direct traffic, but they can observe what it's doing. Hmm. Yeah. So, so, Right. So what's interesting is, I mean, one, I'm not an expert in evolutionary biology at all. And that's the specifics of that are less interesting only because to me, I'm not at this point not convinced that consciousness is necessarily tied to that. So I think, yes, it makes sense that these um, more complex and, and even just very different processing that happens in our brains than that happens in other mammalian brains um, for example, we clearly have those capacities and we're clearly doing something else. But how consciousness relates to that and whether consciousness is a key piece of that, I don't I don't think we have any evidence for. And so I think, you know, if a worm is conscious, if there's something that it's like to be a worm, which, you know, people's intuitions go different ways. But you could imagine that um, or if you need to make it a little more complex, a bee or an ant or a mouse or however far you need to go, but a, a much more simple brain than the brain we have, right? Um, if there's experience present there, I think I think we often confuse consciousness with complex thought and a lot of the processing that you were just talking about. And I think a lot of that is just based on our intuitions. Like we we are experiencing a very complex structure. We we are having the experience of what it what it's like to be a human brain, um, and so we and because it's very hard or impossible really to get direct evidence of consciousness anywhere else, we assume that it exists in the in the structures like a human brain that are similar to ours. Um, but I think it's possible, and that could that could absolutely be right. But we don't really have any evidence for believing that. So. Um, if consciousness, you know, if, if there's, I, I can start with a mouse because I think most people will follow me there, right? Um, if there's something that it's like to be a mouse, then a mouse brain entails consciousness, yet all of this other complex processing that we have as human beings um, also entails consciousness, but it's not, it, it's not necessarily consciousness that's enabling it to become more complex. Um, and I, I also think that despite all of these uh, these things that make us so different from all other animals um, and the things that set us apart, um, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> uh, 
but I can't remember what I was going to say. I'm so sorry. No, you're good. <laughs> you're good. I'm sure it'll come back to me, but I just, I just lost. You come it. back. I mean, it was, back. it was, I was just kind of elaborating more on the same point. I think. Well, there's two two things you got me thinking about. One was the rat experiment where they, I believe, they hook up a like an electrode to its brain and and stimulate stimulate its brain to make it navigate a maze through like electrical commands. And the interesting. Yes. Oh, I just remembered what Please I was going to say, but no, why don't no, you finish? Got it. <laughs> okay. um, uh, so, so I was going to say, um, we can we can think of a more a more simple creature um, like a mouse, and then you know think of all the complexity up to human beings. But human beings are still we still have brains, and they we're still kind of at the mercy of whatever our brains are doing. Um, and so, at that level, with respect to consciousness. Um, I'm not sure that there's a difference there. Um, and I, I've been quoting Galen Strawson a lot lately just because I love I love how succinctly he puts it. But he says, um, what you do follows from what you are. And I think, that, you know, that that that's very clear. And, you know, as scientists and people who work with scientists, that's very obvious to us. We, of course, know that, right? If you have damage in a certain part of your brain, what you do and what you experience is going to change dramatically, you know, depending on the change in the physical system. Um, and so, yeah, I think that 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 was the point I, I was was getting at is just it's it we're still, no matter how complex the processing is, and all these things we're able to do, we are it's still a physical system that we're experiencing. Do you think there's flexibility in that system? Uh, and, and in that way, I would point to, I guess, either neuroplasticity or, and actually an idea that a friend had told me after a, a yoga retreat in India, mm. which was, he was told that um, it's kind of like a cow tied to a stake. The cow has free will within the range of the rope. The rope mm. goes and he can go anywhere he wants as long as he's within the range of the rope, mm -hmm. but he can't go beyond. Yeah. I, I kind of think that in some ways you can't, you might appreciate the fact that as somebody who meditates, it feels like you gain some detachment from what you are, from your body, from the form. And I yeah. wonder if there's a way to act, if you have any power to challenge your biology, challenge what you are in a way that actually shifts your um, biology so that you become something different. And, and then that way you're kind of enacting free will for yourself. Yes. So I so in the book, I'm very careful to distinguish free will from conscious will. Um, and let's see, there are many different places I can I can go with this, but I would just start with um, I think we have to start with a basic understanding of, of what we were just talking about, that the, the brain is a physical system. Right. But it's not a um, it's not closed off from the outside world. In fact, it's extremely intertwined with the outside world. So all of this at bottom, it's all physical processing in the brain. Um, we can affect that physical processing through drugs, through food, through, you know, things that we take in through our bodies, through brain damage, through brain surgery, right? You can affect it by, by purely physical means. Um, and then there are also ways in which, um, I mean, there, there are other things like sounds and, you know, things like that. They're basically, our, our brains are just interacting with the outside world continuously. Um, what human beings are able to do, and some other animals, but mostly human beings are able to um, take in information in the form of communication and language, right? 
Um, but still, that's not separate from the physical system, right? This is still a physical brain that receives information in the form of language and communication, and then that changes the physical structure. So everything it's interacting with um, is is changing the physical structure. So absolutely, ideas are incredibly powerful. You know, if I said to you, uh, be careful, a man just walked in, by, you know, he's, there's a guy with a gun behind you, that would totally transform you physiologically. It would change your brain, it would change your heart rate, it would, you know, and, and that's just an idea. That's, um, but the reason you're feeling all of those things is because your physical system has changed. So I think um, it's easy for us to lose sight of that because these illusions we have of conscious will, and I do believe conscious will is an illusion, and maybe I should distinguish that right now from free will. So free will, um, there's absolutely an argument to be made for basically everything I just described. So the brain is a system, it's interacting with the outside world, it makes very complex decisions, and it processes all kinds of information. And um, yeah, I mean, can, can make decisions based on all of that, that processing. I think there's definitely an argument to be made for ultimately that not being so free. Um, but what's more important to me, um, in terms of talking about consciousness is the idea that conscious will is, is absolutely an illusion. So the idea, sorry, the idea that consciousness itself is the thing that's making a decision. Um, and this is the way in which um, free will and the self, and I talk a lot about these two illusions in the book, are almost part of the same, it's really the same illusion. Um, we have, even those of us who are, have been completely convinced that everything we experience is due to our brains, we have this very, very strong um, sense that our self, that's <laughs> the word we have for it, we have this self that's somehow separate from the physical world. Um, and that that self is the thing that's making decisions. And that, I think, is is clearly an illusion. And we know enough about neuroscience to know that that's not the case. I mean, I actually think you don't even need scientific evidence. I think if you spend a lot of time in meditation, you start to, when you spend a lot of time focused on your moment-to-moment -moment experience, you kind of realize that these things, the way you normally experience things is, is not quite right. Um, but, you know, from, of course, from, from all of the neuroscience we now have, um, yeah, we know, we know there's, it doesn't make sense to talk about a self that's this concrete entity that is kind of making all the decisions and, and, and thinking the thoughts and it's, it's all brain processing at bottom. Do you think then that that idea of self is an emergent property. I know. I know one of your ideas that you're you're fond of is panpsychism, and I guess that's the idea that consciousness is maybe a, a fundamental aspect of matter. Yeah. Um. And it, and it got me thinking a lot about the ideas of Donald Hoffman, and he yes. uses the idea of the desktop metaphor for a computer. Yeah. And I can't help but think, what if consciousness is like the electric running through a computer, and the desktop interface is our perception of reality is ourself. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, yeah. So, so panpsychism, um, even though I'm, I'm desperately searching for a new, <laughs> new label because I think it's got a PR problem, but, um, panpsychism is, is a, um, collection of, or a category of theories that describe, as you said, consciousness as a fundamental feature of the universe. And so, 
Um, and and there, there are different ways that it can be described. Some people think it's possible consciousness arises out of very simple information processing. Um, the theories or the way of thinking about it that makes much more sense to me is that it has to be even more fundamental than that, that it's something that would be originating out of a field, um, you know, the fluctuations of which would give matter this intrinsic quality of experience. Um, and again, I always like to emphasize when panpsychism comes up that um, we really have to distinguish consciousness from complex thought. So the idea um, if, if a single cell or an electron has has this intrinsic property that, that some people postulate or, or wonder if it, it's possible it has, it is the most simple experience that we could, you know, we, we probably, we can't even imagine what that would be like, but it does not entail thoughts or intentions or ideas, or it's, it's not, it's clearly not a human mind, right? The idea is that the human brain is the most complex structure we know of, and therefore the experience is incredibly complex, but that if it, if consciousness is a fundamental feature that goes way down, then we're talking about very, very, very simple, um, you know, lacking memory, lacking almost everything that we experience. Um, but no, I think I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think Donald Hoffman's work is incredibly interesting for a couple of reasons. And I love what he's doing. And I've been, um, I've met with him a few times, and I'm trying to meet regularly with him now as much time as he'll give me just because I think what he's doing is so fascinating. But um, he, he, he doesn't, his work doesn't fall under the category of panpsychism, because he, he kind of takes it one step further. Um, which is, and he became interested in this um, when contemplating the hard problem, and and which is essentially how is it that all of this non-conscious material in the universe somehow comes together and starts doing something that causes it to to light up from the inside, and that seems like such an impossible problem to ever solve that he wondered, you know, is it possible we're thinking about this backwards? Is it possible that consciousness is primary, and these other things like space and time emerge from consciousness. And so he's, he's working on this theory. Um, but yes, the de desktop analogy, I mean, separate from his larger theory, I think, is wonderful, especially as a tool for shaking up our intuitions, because I think it is a good analogy, even based on what we know, we already know, right? Um, the idea that our senses are giving us accurate information about reality um, I think is is extremely flawed and um, yeah, which is you know we, we can see every time we have to shatter our intuitions about something when we learn something new about the universe. We're not we're clearly not getting correct <laughs> information about what's out there when it turns out that space and time likely don't even exist and there's something more fundamental beyond that. Building on that idea, hmm. it, it makes me think about, his idea of fitness versus truth. And I guess basically that we evolved this self as almost a heuristic. Do you, have you ever thought about the idea of consciousness being something that if it is, you know, if it is a part of everything, is it possible that it's almost like a sense that we're filtering out in the same way that we have all of this, these light spectrums that we can't see? Hmm. Do, do you kind of see that panpsychism aspect of consciousness as something that is maybe being filtered out? Or do you think of it as something more that is emergent? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so I don't really, I, I have not been able to follow Hoffman all the way to his conclusion, um, even though, I mean, obviously, I don't know, and nobody knows. And this is just 
one big great mystery for us to stare in awe at. <laughs> um, so I don't I, I don't know, um, but my my thought processes and my obsession specifically over the last fifteen years thinking about this and and reading about it, um, I'm still kind of tied to there being a material world. Um, and so to me, if consciousness is something that is fundamental, um, so we have a gravitational field and you know we, we have these different fields that are fluctuating, which give matter these different properties, um, and that there's some field that gives it an intrinsic property of, of experience, I still see you know that that whatever those communications are that are happening between those fields as being something um, very scientific and connected and um, and integrated so that there is something that is a human brain, right? It's just physically, on a physical level, whatever the structure of the universe is, that, you know, out of that structure comes a human brain. And then by definition, this is the experience that is entailed in this collection of matter in this area in space-time. Um, I do, though, think that, that panpsychism um, then gives us a description even of the human brain where there's not one single experience. And this is, I think, where, where the illusion of self um, is informative um, and so I think there, there are lots of things that we describe as unconscious processing um, in the brain and also just in our bodies. Our bodies are obviously you know, doing a lot of work right now that, that we are not aware of. Um, and I don't know where I was going. <laughs> You're letting me ramble on too long. It's all good. Do I'm you... losing myself. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I, I, okay. I'm not going to stop you. This is interesting stuff. Do you... Do you think that the that consciousness requires an exchange of information? One, one thing I just popped into my head is I'm wondering if consciousness exists in any system that doesn't have a nervous system. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that is definitely what most scientists think. And even um, some philosophers who who contemplate panpsychism, David Chalmers is, is a famous one, and his work has really um, influenced my thinking a lot. But he... he he may have actually gone, I, I'm not completely updated on his work, but for a long time, he, that's where he was, that it, that it required, he believed it required or thought it was very likely it required, that consciousness required some level of information processing. Um, and he brings it down to the level of a thermometer. He, um, he, he writes about the, what it would like, to, what it would be like to be a thermometer and how they're just kind of like two states and that there'd just be these very simple experiences fluctuating between these two states. Um, to me, the hard problem of how consciousness comes out of non-conscious matter, how that property ever comes into existence, um, to me, that's just not a good answer, and it doesn't actually answer anything. It just kind of moves the mystery someplace else. Um, so the way I see, when I contemplate panpsychism, and as I, I say in the book, I'm kind of 50-50 on um, being with all the other scientists who believe that we, you know, at the very least, a brain and a central nervous system is required for consciousness to, to exist. Um, and I think it's possible that we may be able to learn that at some point. I mean, neuroscience is a very young science, so there's there's so much we don't know. Um, but it is hard for me to imagine how we could ever know that, um, that, 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 that a brain, that consciousness only exists 
um, in brains. Um, so the so when I contemplate pan, um, panpsychism and the theories that that make a lot of sense to me there, um, no, it goes it, it it would have to go deeper than information processing. It would have to be a, a property of matter. Interesting. And and do you think that can change? One thing that I find fascinating is that we had the cognitive revolution mm-hmm. of what, like 50, 60,000 years ago, where something happened where we suddenly became more creative. And and mm-hmm. that's just maybe complex thought. So again, that's not necessarily a change in consciousness. But then I look at what's happening with technology and I see this massive exchange of information taking place on the internet. I believe uh, Jardine called it the new sphere, the idea that we have like this biosphere and then we have this separate layer of of consciousness that's kind of a shared collective consciousness kind of like in the Carl Jung sense right do do you think that there is a potential for consciousness to then change like for its foundational manifestation to change based on either evolution or the vessel that it creates or maybe technology and the tools that we create I don't see it that way um uh, yeah. Again, when when I contemplate a panpsychic description of the universe, um, consciousness is a is truly a fundamental feature. And so, in the same way that gravity never changes, right? It 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 functions differently, um, and it has all these different effects depending on what matter is present there. But gravity itself is is fundamental um, in in a sense. And so, it's not something. It can be a part of an evolving system, um, but it's still it, it's such a base level that it's not something that itself changes. So, so I do, um, you know, if some version of panpsychism is correct, it makes much more sense to me that um, systems and matter evolves and changes and come, goes into, you know, any number of forms. I'm, you know, many of which we can't imagine. And I mean, just, you know, understanding current physics, the idea that, um, you know, thinking, understanding what we actually mean by time and our experience of time and um, the idea that there could be many more spatial dimensions, you know, all of this is stuff we, we can't even imagine. But I still see consciousness as being tied to the physical world so that it itself is not changing. But of course, all of these experiences are are you know wildly vast. <laughs> um, yeah. Have you ever tried to play with any of the ideas um, or the differences around like a psychedelic experience versus maybe lucid dreaming, virtual reality, waking life? If they're all very interesting to them. They have different perceptual experiences, but it's kind of still rooted in your material brain yeah yes no i think so but i think one of the thing that's so things that's so wonderful about all of those particularly i would say psychedelics and meditation is that they give you such a we're actually just with our brains alone are capable of having such a different experience that they're wonderful tools for interrupting these illusions that we walk around with and so i think they enable us to think much more creatively about consciousness um but no i mean in general i still see them as as the same thing you know you you ingest a psychedelic it has this effect on your brain and now your experience is very different because your brain is is operating in a very different way but what's interesting is that psychedelics and meditation um, are able to quiet what's called the default mode network in the brain um, which is 
neuroscientists think largely are responsible for our sense for this this illusion that we have of being a self. Um, and so many, many people have this experience um, of being fully conscious, right? Consciousness is, is a, as present as ever, but that experience of being a self vanishes. Um, and so things like that, I think, are, are wonderful tools for getting us to break through some intuitions that I think are misleading us or that are preventing us from understanding consciousness better. Um, you also, I, I just remembering now, you've, you've mentioned emergence a couple of times, and um, it, it's possible that, that I'm wrong about this, but emergence to me, the more I've thought about it, um, the more it doesn't apply, but it specifically, I don't think applies to consciousness um, or at least um, potentially doesn't apply to consciousness for two reasons. And one is that emergence is, an emergent property is a description of a physical property. Um, so it just doesn't include consciousness at all, right? Every emergent property, I mean, even in the definition, it's, it's, a, it's the way a physical system changes. Um, and so it just, it doesn't speak to consciousness, I don't think. Um, but it's also complex process. It's, it's something that is by definition complex. And I think this is one of the things that's very hard for us to consider. Um, but we assume consciousness is based on complex processing because we ourselves are complex systems and we experience consciousness. But we have no evidence that that's the case. It could be that consciousness is very simple. Um, and so I, I, I'm, it seems it seems intuitive to us that emergence applies. Um, I, I've sometimes said that and this, this is exactly how, how I felt when I first started thinking about these things and um, working a lot with, with neuroscientists. Um, it seems, I think to, to all of us, it seems that consciousness must be something like electricity, where if you don't know anything about electricity or light bulbs or, you know, the science and mechanics behind it, you flip a switch in a dark room and it's flooded with light and that just seems like a miracle um, and seems very mysterious. But then once you understand the details, um, that, that mystery goes away. And so I think a lot of us thought um, and, and continue to think that consciousness is analogous to that. And I actually think there are many reasons why, why that's not the case. And, and so um, my coming around to being open to um, the idea that consciousness could be more fundamental, actually, I feel like I'm a good proponent of it, largely because I was, I rejected it for so long. It sounded so crazy to me. And it really made much more sense to me that consciousness is this emergent phenomenon. But the more, the more obsessed I got with the topic, the more I, I actually felt like my intuitions were being challenged. And I, and I, I there that there really isn't is it evi isn't evidence good evidence for what that. What role do you think meditation is playing then in kind of hijacking that system? Because one of the things I find so fascinating is you know from what I know about you and your husband is that you both meditate a lot, obviously. Um, yeah. But that's and people who I feel like people who meditate a lot tend to be people who are really good at emotion control. Mm -hmm. And emotion control to me is kind of resisting the urges of the body. And in some way, that's kind of maybe giving yourself more free will. Like there's are you familiar with the idea of the uh, Ulysses Pact? No. 
So it's like uh, Odysseus tying himself to the mast on his ship as he's going past the island of Sirens because he wanted to hear their song, but he didn't want to be attracted to them. Right. So the idea is that we, in our stronger moments, create environments and uh, plan for our plans for ourselves that give us more free will in moments where we might otherwise be weak. So in some ways, I kind of think of that as something that meditation is doing. Yes. But if we don't have the free will and if, con- <laughs> you know what I mean? I guess that's. Well, yeah. No. So that's humble. where I, that's where I would distinguish free will from conscious will. Okay. Okay. Um, that's, that's And just catch. like give, give up the larger argument. Although we can, we can go there if you want no, to. Cause I, I think. I just find that so fascinating. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it is. It's, and I think um, you're right. Yes. It's, it's our ability um, to pause and to override impulses and all of that, that, that is, is still all brain functioning. Um it's still, you know, in theory, you could program a computer to do all of that as well, right? It's, it's, there's, there's this initial drive, and then there's a pause and some processing to calculate all the different outcomes, and you go one path rather than another. Um, that, that's absolutely going on. And meditation, um, again, it's like, you know, it's like thoughts and communication affecting your physical brain and changing the state of your brain. Um, meditation is, is another thing like that. I mean, it's not that different from taking a drug because it is the process of doing it that with your brain changes the physical state of your brain. And it does enable, it has all these, these benefits, um, you know, mental health and physical health. And, and it's, it's because just like communication affects the physical brain, so, so do things that, that we do with our brains. And even our own thoughts, obviously, have a great effect on our, our physical brain. Um, so just like I could scare you by <laughs> telling you someone, someone dangerous is behind you. I mean, we, this, is, this is the vast majority of source of psychological suffering is our, t- you know, telling ourselves stories that are, that are harmful. Um, so, but, but in the sense that consciousness itself is the thing that's making the choices or doing the driving, I I don't think that's the case. And I have a chapter in my book called Along for the Ride, and that's basically how I see consciousness. And I think, I actually think it is, there is a feedback loop. I think there, it is the fact that we're having a conscious, conscious experience affects the brain. Um, but I don't see any way in which consciousness is driving most of the behavior that we feel it is. And and that's true of meditation as well. Could you see it as more collaborative then? I mean, is it possible that there is a, a if you mentioned, you know, the feedback loop between the two, is, is there, mm-hmm. do you see any potential that are, that we have choices that are impacting how consciousness is being manifested? Do you think that we play any role in that or do you think we are one? I think it's possible. Yeah, this is this is one place I get stuck. I mean, it's really there. There are two areas um, where where I get stuck like this. And yeah, this is one of them. I think the only way that it makes sense to me. So so there are so many things um, that we feel like we're making free choices um, that at the level of the brain, you can describe them as free choices. But there there are many studies at this point confirming that the moment that you feel in consciousness, your conscious experience of feeling, okay, this is what I'm going to do now, or this is the decision I'm going to make, um, that basically, that processing has already happened. So consciousness, in in many senses, is the last to know. Um, I talk about the uh, the phenomenon of binding in my book, which is also a great intuition shatterer. <laughs> and binding has to do with um, the brain 
um, put, putting different events together in time. And by events, I mean, I mean small things like the sounds we hear, the sights we see, um, and our uh, proprioceptive um, senses. So I, in, the, in my book, I give the example of playing tennis, right? We have this experience when we, the ball hits the racket, we see it hit the racket, we hear it hit the racket, and we feel it hit the racket all at the same time. When all of those things are moving through the world at different rates, the sound waves, the light waves, um, and then they reach our body at different times, and then it takes different times for, you know, the sensations from our fingers to reach our brains, for the light from our eyes, you know, this is all, they're all arriving at the brain at different times, and our brain um, goes through this process called binding, where it kind of delivers us this present moment experience of, of it all happening at the same time. So the idea that consciousness, I mean, it really, consciousness is kind of like the last thing to happen in, in most instances. Um, and that's very counterintuitive. And that is that definitely shatters um, our, our usual sense of how the world works. Um, David Eagleman is, does talks much more eloquently about all of this than I do. Um, and he says something to the effect of um, our, our conscious experience lags behind the physical world, that we're, in a, in a sense, we're, we're behind, we're in the past, because everything we're experiencing um, at, at the physical level has already taken place. And I think that's, that's true for a lot of the decisions we make, if not all of the decisions we make, actually. It brings me back to that rat with the electrode in his brain where yeah. he would get the signal and the question is he does he know that he was given a command or does he just think he's acting out the command that he thought of himself no i think i think for the most part we're, we're in that state as far as how consciousness gets back in though i think it's possible um that the brain is aware that that there there's yeah that there's this feedback so that the brain could make decisions um, to avoid pain and suffering, um, because that pain and suffering will be experienced. I'm not, I, I I'm still thinking about that. <laughs> I feel like there's something not right there and that my intuitions may be misleading me there, but it, it seems like that's possible. I mean, the, the way you can argue against that is if you imagine some, um, very advanced AI, right? If we create a robot that is totally a convincing human being, we can't tell the difference. Um, but you can imagine that that AI does not have consciousness, so it's completely, the lights are out on the inside. Um, you can imagine it would still be programmed to avoid running into traffic or to avoid avoid breaking its leg and maybe, you know, cry when it gets, gets quote-unquote hurt um, without actually having an experience at all. So, yeah, yeah. You're kind of, I don't know. You're kind of reading my mind on that one a little bit. Do you, yeah. Obviously, we're going to get into this realm soon, I think, where we have... Um, you know, potentially if, if the fMRI machine, for instance, is telling us that we're getting or making decisions, you know, our, our motor cortex is telling our hand to move before we consciously become aware of it. Um, mm -hmm. That's something that we could potentially detect and actually maybe in the future, you know, write a program to say, hey, if this happens, tell my brain and give me a choice to maybe like hijack it. I don't know. But yeah, I, I guess I have you thought much about what, what the implications of consciousness um, as an information exchange process and as something mm -hmm. that is fundamental to everything? Yeah, what that means for artificial intelligence, what that means for the fact that we are starting to create these neural nets that are, you know, possibly become integrated with our brain. Like, yeah, 
you know, it scares people to think that we're robots <laughs> just processing information, but now we're creating robots that yeah. we're also arguing might be conscious just for the by default of being yeah. matter. No, and I mean computers already make decisions in a sense. You know, there there are many ways in which learning and decision making is is taking place. Um I tend to get overwhelmed and just throw my hands up <laughs> when it comes to AI. Um the one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is if some version of panpsychism is correct, if, if consciousness is actually fundamental um, and an intrinsic property of all matter, then I think what's interesting is, um, one, suffering is just what has the capacity for suffering. So I actually get equally interested then in things like plants and, and other life um, that we have never or at least I've never thought um, entailed consciousness before, you know, like what, what would it be like to be a tree? And does it even make sense? I actually don't even think it makes sense. You know, if there's consciousness present in the tree as a system, I don't think it makes sense to ask whether there's something it's like to be that entire tree in the same way we can ask that about human beings. Um, because of the way our brains are structured, it is creating this very specific experience and it's integrated and it's, you know, cross communicating. And, it, you know, it's, it's just, it, it, it makes sense that if consciousness is pervasive, the brain creates a, the type of experience of a mind that we have that would not be present in a tree. Um, and so, you know, I imagine if there is consciousness present in the, the particles that make up a tree, um, that it's it's much more like a flow of experiences that come in and out that, you know, maybe entails some memory. I mean, there's there's Daniel Chamovitz um, talks about how plants um, um, process all of the um, information in their environments from touch to light to um, the way electrical signals propagate um, based on what the plants are in proximity to and all this super inform uh, interesting information about about plant behavior. Um, I wouldn't imagine any of that to feel like an integrated experience in a plant because of the way a, a plant is structured. Um, I forgot your question. <laughs> no, you're good. Well, okay. it makes me think, well, I think you're going a little bit there towards ethics. Uh, in some oh, I know. Well, right. You were asking about yeah. AI. So, yeah. So I, so I can equally, I can, you know, I start getting curious then what type of experience would be present in a plant if, if consciousness is pervasive. Um, and then I, I kind of apply that to AI. And so I think if we are, if we get to the point where we can seriously, wonder whether the AI is conscious. I think it's our ethical obligation then to wonder, can it suffer? And if the information processing, even though the behavior looks the same as human behavior, if the structure internally um, is not integrated the way that a brain is, I mean, I think that you, I think it's po it'd be possible to create an AI um, that behaves much, very much like a human being, but the structure is so different on the inside that it f doesn't feel anything like what it feels like to be a human being. And then, you know, there are all the questions of can it suffer like a human being? So, I mean, I imagine even if there's consciousness in plants, I, I think it's there, you can make a very good argument for our capacity for suffering is much, much higher than theirs. And therefore, there's like this imbalance in terms of um, the ethical implications. And I think we we might be facing something like that with AI as well, which is going to be very confusing if they exhibit the same behavior 
and we we just can't know what type of experience they're having. Yeah, getting into those implications moving forward. Um, what what kind of impact are you hoping the book has? You know, what are you wanting people to just be more mis- mystified and and kind of in awe and and almost finding just appreciation, gratitude for this ride? Um, maybe you want them to go find the answers, or is there? some specific you know like what is what what is the hope of telling people their intuition is wrong yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're all wrong um no it's actually it really is a combination of the first two things you said um the reason i so the, i first started writing actually just for myself i was working through these ideas and i find that writing helps me think more clearly um and i've been taking notes on this subject forever basically but i, I started formally writing about it when i actually when i started contemplating Um, the idea that consciousness could be more fundamental. I was so um, kind of disturbed and surprised that my thoughts were leading me there. I felt like I needed to really work through them. Um, But once I started sharing my writing with other people and then really realized I was was writing something for the general public, um, that was really my main goal is just that as I was having conversations with people, I realized that most people don't realize how, how mysterious consciousness is. And I think we derive a lot of pleasure and well-being. And I always hesitate to use the word spirituality, but I think, um, you know, the, the spirituality in the sense that I, <laughs> the sense that I mean it, um, can be had from, from just being face to face with these mysteries. And so few people realize how mysterious consciousness is that that really, that was the, the initial goal was just, I want as many people who are going to enjoy tripping out on this <laughs> to to realize you know what what there is to be interested in, um, and then yes, the the more the deeper into the writing process I got, and the more scientists I started interviewing for the book, um, I realized that yeah, if if it's possible for us to understand consciousness more fully, um, which I'm optimistic about, I think it's it's definitely possible. It could fall into one of those categories of things we just will never understand. Um, but I think we haven't spent much time on it um, in the scheme of things. And if we are going to make progress, the way we'll get there is by challenging our intuitions and continuing to ask these questions. And so, yeah, it became um, it, it became part of my motivation became to influence as many, you know, young scientists and thinkers as possible in the hopes that maybe one day we can understand it a little bit better. Is there anything coming down the line in terms of studies or new breakthroughs you've seen in the neuroscience or maybe any like problems you would love to see the the new scientists of tomorrow tackle as they move forward? Not not specific to this mystery, although Donald Hoffman is, is, as I said, doing some very interesting work, and I'm curious to see where that leads and what types of ideas come out of his work. Um, and I think more work like that is really necessary. It's almost like um, we need the theoretical branch of neuroscience. Um, and maybe, I mean, maybe it is part of physics. I, I, I don't know what category it would fall under, but there's so much theoretical work that happens in physics where... Um, the the ideas and the math are are put together and all of these different solutions are considered and 90% of them get ruled out but there's kind of this process and I, and I think we need some type of process like that happening um, with consciousness studies yeah and do you have anything coming 
up in the future? A new book? You gonna go on tour? Anything? <laughs> anything you want to tell? This the is my audience? least favorite question. <laughs> yeah, come on, you got to do a little self promotion. <laughs> no, I actually, I, I don't. Or I got to convince um, you I mean, to I, answer. I have some. Well. I have. I have events and, and interviews coming up, but this book has completely taken over my life. And and the honest answer to that is, I want to spend more time with my girls, <laughs> my my two daughters. Um, but no, my my agent is on my back about what's next. I I I do not know what I'll write about next, but I have I'm I can't seem to stop thinking <laughs> about these types of things, and so I'm sure I'm sure at some point I'll just start writing but I actually I don't know what it is yet I do have I, I have an event coming up next week but I, I think this probably will air after it so no need yeah. to mention it well you're you're along for the ride so you don't really have a choice about whether you think about it or not <laughs> yeah and I have no choice anyway right <laughs> well Annika thank you so much for joining us I really mm-hmm. really appreciate taking the time away from your girls and your writing and all the things in your life so thank you no it was it was a lot of fun I love having these conversations thanks <laughs> 